So this morning, I am privileged to have David Snyder come up. He is going to share from the Word. I'm excited to hear from him this morning. Give it up for David. Will you turn with me, please, to Acts 28? We're going to start our reading in Acts in verse 23, and I'm going through 29. This is primarily talking about Paul. Um, Paul, after he was... In Rome, he's talking to the Jews here, so that's kind of a little bit of a context, so we'll go with the reading. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, that's Paul, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. So when they did not agree amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, and you shall not understand. And seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts in turn, so that I should heal them. Verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute amongst themselves. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you today. We thank you for your word. Lord, I I pray today that um, you would get me out of the way. Lord, you know that I fumble with speech once in a while. Lord, I pray that people hear your word today. I pray that your Holy Spirit will talk to souls. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity and humbly thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, um... So Mike asked me to preach, I don't know, a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks. Um, And I'm glad he didn't tell you all. I think this is probably a surprise for some of you. I'm glad he didn't tell you because it would be a lot more empty than it probably is today. Um, But I I am thankful for it. A couple of things. Um, I have a lot to cover today, probably because I'm not a professional speaker. Um, So I have a lot to cover today. And so I'm going to put some verses out there. I'm going to read those verses to you. Please take them down. All right? Be a good Berean. I won't have enough time to, like, have you guys go to the verses all the time. So take them down. Be a good Berean. Test this. And then, if I'm wrong, make sure you tell Mike. 
All right, so I'll be talking about today a view that is prevalent today in the Christian churches, which is ultimately a pessimistic view that the church is defeated in history, that the church gets beat up, and Jesus comes back to rescue a defeated church. I'll be talking about the kingdom of God, or or heaven as it's in the New Testament. And you know how many times it's in there? 111 times. The gospel of the kingdom is heralded in the New Testament. Matthew 3, verse 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.23 And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. A little bit further down in Matthew, in chapter 9.35, it says somewhat of the same thing. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Mark 1.4 Now after John was in prison, that's John the Baptist, He was put in prison. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Mark 1.5, Jesus is saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Matthew 24.14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the time, the end will come. So in the New Testament, we find the term gospel. You guys know that means good news, right? It's on the lips of Jesus many times. Christ uses the word most often in connection with the kingdom of God. It's the gospel or good news of the kingdom of God. God's word is relatively a simple story. Um, in regards to that it falls in these four points. We have the fall, we have redemption, we have God's kingdom, God's victory over the world. And I think as Christians, we're missing a part of that story. And that's what I'm here to talk about today. It, and it helps me, it helps to explain that this missing part of the story is why the church in general is so ineffective in this culture. It's the good news of the kingdom that Christ has brought. So at the end of the the passage in Acts in 28, it's pretty interesting. It's talking about the Apostle Paul. In in verse 30, it says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. So we have Paul the Apostle. We know Paul preached repentance, faith, forgiveness, grace, salvation. We read that over and over again in his epistles. And we read, and and we Christians are also pretty good about giving the message of repentance and faith and forgiveness in Christ 
and grace and salvation in Him alone. Obviously, we're called to give this gospel the good news, and it's my belief that the church overall, folks that are at least evangelizing, do this well. So here in the book of Acts, we see Paul didn't only give the simple gospel to individuals. We see him here that he's preaching and teaching to those who came. He's preaching about a significant part of God's story in Revelation, something that's been missing in a lot of our conversations with the culture. It's the good news of the kingdom. At the end of verse 23 of Acts 28, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. How would that be for a Bible study? From morning until evening, he expounded about the kingdom of God. Where is that story today? Where is it being taught? Where is it being exhorted? I'm here today to say we need an emphasis in the Bible where there's an emphasis. The kingdom of God is the reign and rule of Christ in this world. We have Jesus walking into His ministry in the book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We see Jesus talking in Mark 1.15, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We see Jesus talking about the gospel of the kingdom. And now here we have the book of Acts ending after Luke tells us the story of how the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church and the gospel was going out to the world through this church and there's persecution and there's tragedies and there's glorious victories. And while all this is going on, we have God's Word telling us about the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom. It was on the early church's lips We are missing that today. The church toils and toils on how we're going to change things. Are we just going to work harder and get more programs? Are we going to try to encourage people to evangelize? What are we going to do? Encourage people to vote the right way? Do we take to social media and explain to the crowd how important it is to vote conservative values? Don't hear me wrong. Social media is important. It's what our culture is using. What is our message? What is it that we're preaching to our culture? In the church today, we've lost a beautiful part of the whole story, which is God's story. It's the good news, not just about our own private individual salvation before God. Of course that's true, and that's to be proclaimed, and the church does a halfway decent job at that proclamation. Salvation alone? Amen? In Christ alone? But we're missing something entirely important. This is a central theme in God's revelation to us. In His Word, it's about His kingdom. It's my belief that we've missed this because we're so wrapped up in our self-absorbed thinking. We are more excited about our story than we are about His story. We have His revealed Word in front of us. It's all His story. God has condescended, walked among us. He has revealed Himself to us. 
we have something spectacular, not just the writings of a madman with false prophecies or a book that changes over time. Church, we have before us the revelation of an almighty God. A true and living God. Our God has no beginning and no end. He's the first and the last. There's no gods before Him, nor is there any after. He knows all things. He decrees all things. He decrees the end from the beginning. He spoke into nothing, and out of nothing came everything. My friends, you can't even fathom nothing. When you try to even fathom it, you, you're, you're off. What does the word say? No thing. You can't even fathom it. Nothing. If you fathom it, it's something. God spoke and all things came into existence. This is our God who carries everything to his existence, to its end. He is all-powerful. There are no molecules within this universe that aren't controlled or directed by him. We have this before us in His revelation that He has given us. It's marvelous. Why did He do all of this? Well, we know from catechism, right? For His glory. But there's another reason. Why did He do this for us? So we can know Him. We have a God that wants us to know Him. His revelation we have before us. 66 books and letters. We have one book written over 1,500 years by 40 authors. 31 old, 9 new. About this one man. That alone is impressive. But if that book made hundreds of predictions about that one man which were fulfilled to a T, to the letter, that book wouldn't just be impressive, it would be supernatural. That is exactly what we have. The Bible is a book about one man supernaturally fulfilling hundreds of prophecies. That man is Jesus Christ. God has spoken and he has a revelation in history. Ephesians 1:11 says, "In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will." I almost entitled this sermon "All." You'll understand that in a moment because there's so many alls. Some things? No, all things. No one can halt his hand and say, what have you done? What are you doing? He is all-powerful, and he does according to his will. Daniel 4.35 says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
So we Christians can say this, because of that, in the Old Testament, we have Paul then writing in Romans 8.28, he says, we, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and, the, and to those who are called according to His purpose. It's all things. Not some things, all things. If you get nothing out of today, remember all Our God is sovereign. He has a story where history is going and the fact that we have this story and we know how it ends is incredible because we have His revelation that should make us so excited. Our God is sovereign over history. We have His story and it's going somewhere. And let me tell you, unbelievers don't have that. They are clueless To the unbelieving world, history is either cycles or chaos. It's undirected stuff moving through history in their world. History's not going anywhere. It doesn't have a goal or an aim. If for some reason unbelievers do seem to have a goal or aim, it's because they haven't been able to shake the residual Christianity off of their worldview. Our God gives us a history that has a climax. This this is something that as Christians, we own this. This should excite us. We have hope, a guaranteed assurance of what's coming. And we have every reason to lay down our lives for the gospel's sake. Every reason. We have every reason to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. We have every reason to seek first his kingdom above everything else. Why? Because we have the end of the story. But here's what's wrong in our Christian culture today. God has given us his story, his history, and it's a symphony. It's beautiful. And when it's all played together, every part is majestic. It's powerful. It will give you goosebumps. It will inspire you. It will make your heart flutter. I remember, um, those of you that don't know me, I was a band geek. I I played multiple instruments. Uh, I I started on saxophone. I went to trumpet. Uh, Band director switched me to tuba, which was my main instrument then. Um, some of you might laugh about that, but I was playing heavy metal before heavy metal was around. (laughs) The tuba. All right. So I remember you get that piece of music. I see some music here. You get that piece of music, and you're like, wow, how's this going to be, right? You have a band director, and your band director's job is to get you all to play your part, to get it to play right. So you learn your part. Your band director over this whole time as you're learning, he's drawing things from you. He's holding things back. He's doing all this work, right? And then you get in front of an audience and all that work comes together and it's beautiful. He's drawing and pushing and pulling and and it's just beautiful. This wonderful symphony that God has wrote was meant to play 
to be played together. And the problem today is we stripped it of its climax in some of its players. As Christian, we have been playing the music, and don't get me wrong, it has beautiful parts. Doctrine and gospel, right? We've read in our past life group about the doctrine and the gospel culture, and that's beautiful. Play it. Let it be heard. But we're missing something. We're missing part of the instruments. We're missing a part where the symphony starts to climax, and it brings tears in your eyes, and your heart pounds, and you get goosebumps. We're missing the part of the story that is not just good news of salvation and forgiveness, it's good news, but it's also the good news of the kingdom, the rule and reign of God in history and His Messiah. We're missing it. It's the story, and the story starts to get stunted. It's not that the instruments aren't playing or playing the wrong thing, but the symphony is missing that climax, its peak. We either turn it down or we completely turn it off in our culture, and we wonder why we're impotent. Let me make this clear. It's not because God isn't ruling or reigning, or he's not going to have victory in history, It's because his people today are losing part of the story. God has specifically placed it within his story to give his people hope and direction. I don't know how many of you know Doug Wilson, Pastor Doug Wilson, if you've heard of him. He said this, and it's pretty succinct and small, ultimately you hit what you aim at. If you believe ultimately that history is going to end in chaos for the church, Jesus came in and kind of sort of brought the kingdom, but ultimately the church is defeated in history, cowered in a corner, waiting for her Christ to come back. Jesus comes back to a defeated church, his bride battered and torn, used up and thrown aside by the world. If you believe this is our lot, then What do we have to fight for? Why? Because the worse it gets, the worse it is, the better it is for the church. The closer we are to his return, right? We can just leave this earth behind. That's the mantra. What does God's word say? Be salt, be light. Have victory over this. Fight, bring the good news into salvation. Lay down our lives for this situation. Sad to say, most Christians are believing at any moment we can just get out of here. In fact, that is their hope to just leave. So I pray today that God will correct us about his good news of the kingdom, his victory in history. I'm not here to espouse a particular end-time view. I'm simply here today to challenge the church to be biblical. Every Christian ultimately believes at the end of history, Jesus is victorious. Amen? All I'm saying is Christians... As his church, most of us has pushed aside that victory that is in Christ. For his reign and rule of this world, we pushed it aside to bunker down and separate ourselves from the world and his culture. Is that what Christ wants? 
Is this the victorious church? God is king. Amen? Is Jesus seated and reigning now? 1 Corinthians 15, 25-36, Paul says this, For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Paul knew his Old Testament. He was quoting Psalm 110.1. And it says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Guess what? This is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Somewhere around 25 times this is requoted. The apostles knew this. Also, side note, I am his footstool. I get the joy and the honor that God can rest his feet on me. Why? Because I was his enemy. And he has made me his footstool. I am in the throne room as a piece of furniture. And if you are a Christian, you are also. This is Christ's victory in history. Every Bible-believing Christian should affirm this. The story has been truncated. It's not just the fact that we have redemption in Christ. That is true. God's story in history is redeeming His people through Jesus' sacrifice and defeating death. In His ultimate display of power by His resurrection... That, however, is not the end of the story. It's also the story that God is taking his rightful place as king over his people. And the world as well. It's when God became king as a man ruling and reigning. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and also in 11 we have, I'm paraphrasing here, the people of Israel are demanding they want a king. You guys know the story, right? They want a king to rule over them. What does Samuel say? Well, I believe he perceives this to be sinful. It's a sinful thing to desire a king like the other pagan nations have. This is how unbelievers think. They want a physical guy, a physical throne, to rule over them and tell them what to do. But Israel had God as their king. They didn't need an earthly king, some man dictating what was law. They had God Almighty. When they said, we want a king like other nations, Samuel is displeased because it's simple. And God says, right, Give them their king. But let them know, Samuel, these are the consequences that are going to follow. You're going to get taxed. Your king is going to send your kids to war. You will make weapons for that king's war. You will work for this king, and your harvest will be his harvest. You will become his slaves. These are the consequences of a human king over you. And he will take God's position of authority in your lives as God's people. God tells Samuel, which is awesome, 
Because God in His compassion, if you know the story, Samuel has two wayward sons. And so God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Because I'm their king. But go ahead, give them their king. I'll give them what they want. So Israel gets their king, their human king, and it's a curse on them. The glory of this story is, despite their sin, their rejection of God as king, God works in history to bring about his story of redemption. And enter the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, the son of David, the promised descendant of Abraham. God himself takes on flesh to represent his people and to save them, to fulfill all that was said about him. I used to think, That the king of kings or lord or lords just meant that he was the best of those things. I was wrong. Of course he's the best. But he actually means that he's over them. He's the king of all kings. He's the lord of all lords. He's over them. They all answer to him. They aren't even in the same category. He has authority over all of them. We have lost this part of the story. We need to turn to this part of the orchestra and make it sure it gets turned up. This part of the story has to be turned up. It's how we impact our culture. Remember, we started in Acts 28. Paul is persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. So let's look at it. Moses, his victory theme. All through Moses' writings, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we have God's victory theme. God's theme of redemption and his victory in history. I was excited to do this today because catechism's kind of like this now, right? It's God's story, his victory all the way through it, his redemption story. Moses talked about Jesus. Jesus himself said this. Jesus tells the Jews of his day in John 5, 46... If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. For those who don't understand this, that Jesus never, you know, they might say that he didn't claim to be God. Look no further. This verse pretty much proves it. it. It's audacious. This should blow our minds. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying the whole story from the beginning to end is all about me. Look around. Everything around you is about me, bringing me glory. And Moses, the lawgiver, the one you look up to because he's your hero, he wrote about me. When you read him, you're reading about me, my story. How powerful is this? Genesis 3.15. Chapter 3, verse 15. Moses records the first glimmer of the gospel way back when. Theologians call this the proto-evangelum. If I said that wrong, Mike will correct me. The fall enters the world. Adam and Eve, you know the story, they eat from the one tree God said don't eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve, being deceived by Satan, eats. She turns to her husband gives, that's funny and in stuff, she turns to her husband 
meaning he was right there, gives the fruit to him and he eats. Sin enters God's good world. Shame enters man. Man attempts to cover himself. It's it's man-made work righteousness. Religion, folks. Which is man's attempt to be acceptable to God. And he hides from God. God calls and seeks for man. And this is amazing. After the attempt at confession by Adam and Eve, God begins to act. I don't know if you ever found this weird, but He speaks to the serpent first. Not first to the lawbreakers. Not to the covenant breakers. God promises immediately the curse on Satan. The serpent's head would be crushed by the woman's seed. Singular. And Satan would bruise his heel. God right away tells us about Jesus. The fall enters the garden. Man, the image bearers of God, are with God in the garden. They are naked and they're good with it. There is no shame. Man sins and as God's promise, death enters history. God's redemption plan starts right away by His proclamation that the woman's seed, singular, would deliver the death blow to Satan. This is a concurrent action as the seed is going to deliver the death blow, Christ steps and crusts the head of Satan at the same time. And Jesus then is wounded in that process. Notice the seed, not from man, it's woman's seed. This is the first picture, if you haven't noticed it, of the virgin birth. Moses is writing in his day, he would not have referred to the offspring as the woman's seed. That was not the way they did back then. They would have referred to the man's seed, not the woman's seed. So the woman's seed is purposeful. It's pointing to Jesus and the virgin birth. Then we have God after this proclamation in His compassion and His mercy. Remember, Adam and Eve deserved to be naked, shamed and exposed in the garden. God gives us the first innocent for guilty sacrifice. The first animals die innocent. Innocent for guilty to cover their nakedness. Adam and Eve are cast out of God's garden. Now listen, somewhere, 4,000 years later, 4,000 years later, here comes Jesus, the God-man, the perfect representative for His people, the second Adam. Where did they find Jesus? When they were looking to try Him? In a garden. Where did they lay His body after His crucifixion? In a garden tomb. Where did He conquer death? In a garden Listen here. Jesus was the righteous and blameless. And how did he die? Naked and shamed. God says to Adam and Eve, the ground is cursed and will bring forth thorns for you as you work it. Jesus comes to die, to take on the death for the descendants of Adam and Eve, a death that Adam and Eve should have took. He is naked and he's shamed. He's not covered. And he wore on his head a crown of thorns, the display of the very symbol of the curse of the fall of humanity. Jesus conquered death in a garden. Adam sinned and was cast out of the garden. Adam and Eve died in a garden spiritually. They had fellowship with God there. They were to take dominion over the earth and subdue it. 
They sinned and they were cast out. Jesus comes in, He conquers death in a garden. Who sees Him first? It's ladies, right? Mary Magdalene, to be specific. She sees Him. And, and the empty tomb, or she, she, does, she just sees the empty tomb. Where's Jesus? She perceives a gardener. Of course, we know that gardener was Jesus. Have you ever asked yourself the question why she, mistook, she would mistake Jesus for a gardener? This is not an accident that John writes this. What does a gardener do? They tend to the garden. Jesus conquered death and came out of the tomb. And for some odd reason, he's mistaken for a gardener. Why would she think he was a gardener? Because he was working the grounds. The first thing the Son of Man, the second Adam was doing after he defeats death in the garden where sin first came in, Jesus starts to work on the grounds. After Jesus defeated death in the resurrection, He begins the process of making all things new. This is where history is going. Moses records the dominion mandate. Adam and Eve were to take dominion over the earth. This command has never been rescinded. Moses records the covenants, the covenant with Noah. God promises not to destroy the whole earth again with a flood. There's more there. I don't have time, but he records these. The covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, 15. God tells Abraham, through your seed, again singular, God will bless all the earth. Look, look up to the stars, so shall your descendants be. You can't even count the stars. If that wasn't enough imagery, God says your descendants will be like the sands of the sea. That's uncountable by us. This is the whole point. You can't count it. Since we're talking about covenants, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the covenant with David in Samuel, 2 Samuel. We, we hear this. We can't forget about this covenant. It's important. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 Moses also records the promise of a lamb. Genesis 22. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Abraham has a son, the son of his love. God tells him to take the son of his love, the one that was promised that God would bless the whole world through. Take him. Go to the place of sacrifice, the land of Moriah, to a mountain I will show you. Abraham goes. He's obedient. you got to remember, this was a three-day journey for Abraham and his son Isaac. Again, all these things pointing to the Messiah in redemption with Abraham. Isaac, the promised one, the son of Abraham's love, for three days is carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Isaac gets there. His dad says, we have the wood. He says to his dad, we have the wood for the sacrifice, for the fire, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says to his son, God will provide for himself the land. And listen to this. 
1,500 years later. We kind of think 1,500 years isn't a big deal. It's a big deal. How long has the Earth, or how long has um, America been around? A little over 200 years. 1,500 years before Christ. This is amazing. It should bring goosebumps to us. Abraham lays down the son of the promise, the son of his love. He goes to slay him. And just then, before his hand comes down, ready to strike him, the angel of the Lord says, No, don't do it. And God holds back his hand. Just then, Abraham turns and sees a ram, not a lamb, but a ram caught in a thicket. And they sacrifice to God this lamb. Abraham names this place, listen, the place the Lord will provide it. Again, 1,500 years later, God gave his son, his only son, the son of his love, the, the wood to carry to the place of his offering. It was the same place that Abraham had gone to offer his son Isaac. Jesus died for the sins of his people, and God did not withhold his hand this time, this day, from his son. It was the same place that God had promised to provide it. As John the Baptist put it, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Moses also recorded the foreshadowing of the temple and the priest. Don't have time for that, but there's all kinds of goodies there too. Moses recorded the victory of the Messiah. Numbers 14.20-21 through 21. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. Genesis 49.10 The scepter shall not depart. This is great. Shiloh. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And he shall be and to him shall be the obedience of the people until Shiloh comes. What does Shiloh mean? It has a couple of meanings. The scent, the seed, the peaceable or prosperous one. So Judah will remain in, in power until the Messiah Shiloh comes. And the obedience of the people belongs to him. Moses told of this Messiah is conquering the world in that all the obedience is going to be his. The story of Jesus having victory over the world is not something that Puritans made up. If anyone's to blame, it would be Moses. Then we have victory in a psalm. Psalm 66, 4. All my alls here. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you. They shall sing praises to your name. Psalm 67, 2. That your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Psalm 72, 5-8. They shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure. Throughout all generations, he shall come down like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. In his days, the righteous shall, shall flourish. An abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and the river to the ends of the earth. 
And if you go down to verse 11 in that passage, yes, all kings shall fall down before Him. All nations shall serve Him. This sounds pretty victorious. And I think sometimes we as Christians just don't take it seriously. We think of it as maybe just spiritual. This sounds pretty physical to me. And some of us might even push it off to some future time. Is it any wonder that the apostles in the book of Acts, preaching the kingdom of God, day and night, kingdom of God, victory in the world, Jesus reigning, what was their story? He must reign until He puts all His enemies under His feet. And the Gospel went out to all the nations, and their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Matthew 24, 14. And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This was a big deal. The Gospel was not just going to the Jews, but now it's going to the whole world. The Gentiles. You know why? Well, here's a little test. I want you to raise your hand if you're Jewish-born. If you're a Jew by birth. Are you Jew by birth? Anybody? Anybody here? Okay, I want you to raise your hand now if you're not Jew or a Gentile by birth and you love and adore Jesus Christ. Raise your hand. I want you to look around. This is a fulfillment to prophecy. This is the the victory in the the prophets here. Isaiah 6, 7 through 9. You know this passage. Actually, Isaiah 2, 2, it says, all the nations streaming up to God. All the nations. I took a DNA test recently that my wife got me for Christmas. And I'm a mutt. I have lots of things in me. I have, I, I have many nations within me. All right, so we have the victory in the prophets. The victory theme in the prophets, Isaiah 6, or 9, 6 through 7. You know this passage. For unto us a child is born. We see it on Christmas cards, right? Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We miss it, but if we look at this, we say, look, right here it says, Jesus is God. Look, Jesus is eternal. Look, Jesus is part of the Trinity. El Gabor, the mighty God. But we also look closely, it also says something else a little bit further in the verse that might not be on our Christmas cards. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to establish it with justice, or judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Another prophet, Daniel, chapter 7, 13 through 14. And I kept in the night visions, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before him, and it was presented before him, and to him was given a dominion, a glory, glory and a kingdom, that all the peoples, 
nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one, which will not be destroyed. I don't have to discuss why this is important. I I use the New American Standard probably because it's the most literal word-for-word translation. But which direction does the Messiah come? In verse 13, he comes up to the Ancient of Days. He's giving a kingdom. The nations, the tribes, the tongues, the people will serve him. We're going to fast forward now to Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew 28 19 through 20, you know it. It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to what? teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So he's telling them to teach them to obey the king. Then Jesus ascends. Which way does he go? He goes up. What was given to him? The nations. What what did he tell you and I and those disciples 2,000 years ago to get? The nations. What does the Messiah truly have to have to be seen as the Messiah? The nations. And in this room right now, as we went over, they're representatives of the nations right here, loving and adoring Christ. I know we're Americans, but we're a melting pot of all these nations. We have Jesus entering the scene after his temptation in the wilderness. We hear the story in the Old Testament of the Messiah and his right to the nations, having dominion given a kingdom over the whole world, the obedience of the nations given to him. The Messiah was to conquer sin. He was to conquer death. He was pierced for our transgression. The whole story is there in the Old Testament. Matthew 4, Jesus, as the perfect Israelite, conquers Satan in the wilderness. Forty days and forty nights of temptation. As Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus, the perfect Israelite, does not fail. He has victory over Satan in the wilderness. And he has this victory. He comes out as the perfect Israelite, not failing in the wilderness as Israel did. Jesus comes out and what does he say? Matthew four seventeen. he says this. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the era of our church today. We preach the gospel with bumper stickers, or t-shirts, or Facebook memes that say, Give Jesus a chance, he died for the opportunity. Let me tell you this, Jesus didn't die so that you would have a chance. Or that you would give him a chance. Jesus commands that you repent and believe. The world is under a new authority. Jesus said, come to him. His message is is a life that's full and peace and forgiveness. And make no mistake about it, he's not asking for a chance. He's telling you who he is. And he commands you to come this day for life. 
This is the truth of the whole story, the whole symphony. Jesus came with this story. And we have forgotten that this is good news, not just for forgiveness and salvation, but it's the good news of His rule and His reign. And it's great and awesome that God became a man to rule and reign under, until His enemies are under His feet. This is good news. The world no longer is under the slay of the evil one in a sense. You can have the victory over the world through Jesus. There is no longer blindness, a lostness that is germane to humanity. Jesus owns the nations, the peoples. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will surely give you give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. What does God the Father say to Jesus? I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you think Jesus forgot to ask the Father? He didn't. He didn't forget to ask for his inheritance. No, he didn't. Jesus left us in Matthew 28. You guys know it. We read it, the Great Commission. In verse 19, it says, Go therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you need to find out what it's there for, right? In verse 18, it says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. And then we get the therefore. Because of that, because he has all authority on heaven and earth, we now have the therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. What authority was given to Jesus? All authority. And in case you didn't understand what all authority was, Jesus says all authority in heaven. Do you think he has authority in heaven? What kind of authority does he have in heaven? He has all authority. That same authority that he has on heaven, he has been granted on earth. And this is awesome. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus has the authority that he has in heaven, and he has the same authority on earth. He has all authority on earth as well. Our Puritan forefathers knew this. It was a no-brainer to them. Their job was to get the nations. They were, taking, they were talking about people groups that were so violent and so pagan, but the Puritans believed that Jesus had authority over all the earth, and they went to go get them. When you know this truth about the rule and reign of Jesus and that it's here today, it gives you all the confidence in the world to go get them. If you're still not with me on this, Jesus gave the timing of the kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 16, 28, Truly I say to you that some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. He's talking to His disciples, and He says some of you here won't even die until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. This is undeniable. If you don't believe me, then you have to reckon with Jesus' own words. Those disciples are dead now, and Jesus brought it. We pray in the Lord's Prayer. We pray this. Jesus the Messiah comes as a fulfillment of everything. 
And what's so amazing is we strip this message from his own lips. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom over and over again. But as a church, we've hushed this message. And some of us cower in defeat. What's our prayers? The majority of the Christian churches, Lord, come get us out of this place. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? The meek shall inherit the earth. In John 17, Jesus says, I do not pray, Father, that you take them out of this world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The church today wants to, wants to go, and by go I mean get out of here. Jesus wants us to go and preach the good news to all peoples because he was granted all authority. Jesus says, inherit the earth. Jesus says, don't take them, Father, but just keep them from the evil one. Can we be salt and light if we're removed? Can we be the shining city on a hill if we're removed? We can't do it if we're cowered in a corner either. Matthew 6, this is the, the prayer of our Lord. He's teaching us how to prayer, pray here. He says, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. John Piper probably does the best exegesis on this portion of Scripture. Hallowed means holy. What Jesus is saying to his Father is, May your name be holy throughout the whole earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says to his people, you pray like this. Father, may your kingdom go throughout the world. May your name be holy throughout the world. How rigorous is God's will in heaven? You think he has a commitment to his will in heaven? When we hear this prayer, does Jesus intend for God's will to be done on heaven and on earth? Do we believe it? You're probably thinking, okay, we need a kingdom. What's your point? What does this all mean? My friends, it means everything. It means today we go forth with a proclamation of good news that is powerful and mighty and bold. This proclamation is filled with peace and love, forgiveness and salvation, but it comes with authority and it comes with hope and it comes with a future for us that's glorious in Christ. God has the nations. They belong to Him. Jesus didn't forget to ask. The Father owned up to His promise. The Father said they're yours. And then we have a warning for the kings in Psalm chapter 2. It says, Be wise, O king, obey the Son, or you will perish when His wrath is kindled. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. The earth is the Lord's, and all nations belong to Him. If I have to simplify it, pray the Lord's prayer and mean it. The gospel we preach is about the good news of the kingdom. And guess what? God has something else to say to this nation, to this people, to this president, to this Congress, to the local magistrates when they murder 3,000 babies a day. God has something to say to a nation that has destroyed a society. Jesus said, Be wise, O king. 
And as Christians, we can speak into this culture to the governing authorities. Be wise. Obey the Son. And the final exhortation to you, church, go therefore. All authority on heaven and on earth is His. Go therefore proclaim His truth. You can do it with joy in your hearts and a smile on your face because you know the victory that Jesus has and is having in history. Don't pretend to be neutral in this world because this world is not neutral. Let's call people, let's call our leaders, let's call this nation to repentance. They're not neutral, neither are you. Let's go with the gospel of the kingdom. Go. Dear Lord, Lord, we we thank you so much for your victorious message. The gospel that you've had in history, your kingdom. Lord, may we pray it. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, just be with us. Help us to take this. I know it's a step, Lord. Help us to take this. And Lord, I know I was rushing, trying to get a lot in. Lord, I ask you to forgive me. Lord, I pray that someone here was touched so that they might be living this out in their life. Lord, I thank you again for the opportunity to speak. I ask you for blessings. I thank you so much for a nation that we're, we're, we're taking a pause on tomorrow to remember those who died for us in order to make this possible where someone like me can get up and speak in front of people. Lord, I thank you for that. Be with us. Bring us back next week. Lord, you're great. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.